Welcome back to Diaspora.nz. I'm your host, David Booth, and we're joined today by Alex Kendall, who, while finishing up his PhD in computer vision and robotics at the University of Cambridge, where he's a research fellow at Trinity College, is now building a new startup in the autonomous vehicle space. He's worked as a research engineer at a Silicon Valley startup called Skydio. He did an engineering degree with a few entrepreneurial projects on the side back at Auckland University. Thanks so much to David Gough for the introduction. Uh, but without further ado, Alex, uh, joining us from Cambridge, really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Hello, I'm excited to be on board. I'd love to hear a little bit, uh, maybe a, a nutshell summary of sort of how you got to, to where you are today. For sure. Uh, so I, uh, I grew up back in Christchurch and uh, when I finished my school, Studies came up to Auckland University to study engineering. Um, you know, I've always been fascinated with technology and, and love tinkering around with stuff. And it's, it's sort of the classic uh, engineering dream about going uh, going and building stuff. And for me, it was really robotics that captured me. And so that, that led me to study mechatronics engineering. I had a great three years at Auckland University doing that. And uh, when I finished up, I was sort of on a limbo of, of, of what do I want to do. And I felt that oh, there's so so much exciting stuff going on in the world and I, I really wanted to learn more. And so that, I guess that drove me to, to do a PhD and, um, and uh I thought we'd be better else to do it than, than Cambridge, and uh, you know, a few few opportunities sort of came together, and um, and I've ended up here, and it's it's been absolutely fantastic, uh, yeah, surrounding myself in this environment, and um, I came over here with a, a bit of an open uh, open research agenda, but I've sort of found my way into into computer vision, which is proven to be a, a exciting field. So I suppose you're like the quintessential kid who loved playing with robots, and then was actually able to to take that into your adult life. So I understand, as, as we said, that you're working in the autonomous vehicle space, and this is really exciting uh, in terms of what could happen, a lot of stuff that needs to happen. And I want to know, firstly, what excites you and what made you go in this direction? And maybe if you could mix in a few basic definitions for us as well, just to make sure that everyone knows what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, so the thing that fascinates me is, is, I guess, how well humans can do all these things, all these tasks, you know, whether it's autonomous driving or whether it's any number of tasks that, that people do in their professional careers. You know, it's unprecedented what the human brain can do. And so being able to replicate that in a machine uh to be able to achieve this sort of artificial intelligence is a real challenge. And that's I find that really exciting. Um, yeah, so, uh, so, I mean, in a typical robotics world, you're looking at uh, everything from perception or computer vision, and that's what I work on, and that's really trying to take in what, you know, what these machines see around them through their senses and trying to understand it. And then you've got uh, sort of prediction and control, which is trying to amalgamate these, uh, these, the sensory input and trying to actually interact with the world uh, to achieve what you want to do, and it's a you know involved. It's a very complex pipeline, but uh, it's some, it's a field that's really really been overturned by machine learning in the last five years. So my understanding that in, in terms of computer vision, as you're you're using you know video input and you're converting it to data, and then can you explain a little bit about what 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 is machine learning and why is that relevant to that big stream of data? What can you do with that once you've you've got the data? Yeah. So I mean, think of an example. If you were to to try and design uh, what we understand as vision in, in our human brain, you could think, okay, if I want to detect a car, I might look for a wheel, a windshield, a front bumper, all these sorts of different parts. And sure, you could design that, but to, to scale that to what we understand around the world, you know, every single object we can understand and with things that we can learn on the fly, it just it just doesn't scale to sort of manually define all these things. And that's the core reason why why we need machine learning and why and why it's so effective is it's that it just scales much further than uh, what's known as hand engineering these features. So the the uh, current technology which this, is, which this is all based on is something called deep learning, and it's it's really a framework for plugging in models that, uh, like you said, feed in with video and output 
some sort of amazing prediction and and you just train these things on this data and it can it can learn these representations itself rather than sort of being hand defined by an engineer so it's kind of i suppose emerging what you are working on within the autonomy space because it's logical that a car that's got a camera on it is going to capture a lot of data in, in front of it and mm-hmm. sort of process that into some sort of decision making about where the car turns when it starts and stops and things where, where are you most sort of focused is it at the deep technology level or are you also following the sort of the broader industry trends and you know what what are the big automakers doing yeah so it's, it's, it's interesting my uh, my take on the industry level is that there's a a real pressure on uh, on all these big automakers to get an autonomous vehicle out and I think that's been a somewhat a byproduct of a lot of the hype that's gone under the field but uh, I guess as a consequence they're, they're trying to bring out these uh, these systems which perhaps might have trouble tr- uh, trouble to scale so they rely on things like LiDAR technology or, or other sensors that really respond well to, to really solid maps uh, or, or things like that. And what uh, what excites me about computer vision is it gives us the opportunity to, rather than rely on all this infrastructure, that we can actually de- design some kind of robot which can understand the scene in front of it uh, inherently. So you don't, need, you don't need to rely on a map. The machine itself can literally see what's in front of it and make its own decisions for itself. And I think that's, that's really exciting and something that's probably missing from, uh, from a lot of the core technology out there today. Right. And of the core technology out there today, obviously some of the big players are taking different approaches. Like the Google approach, I understand, is, is quite logically always being driven by, by their mapping data that they've already got. Do you sort of have comments or, or thoughts on who is doing this, this well at the moment? There are there are so many different exciting groups here. Uh, so yeah, Google uh, obviously with their recent announcement of doing trials in um, uh, in Phoenix in the US, uh, that's their, their systems becoming very mature and and yeah, with with the mapping data works very well. Um, then you're seeing I, I guess a similar approach is being taken by the likes of Uber. Um, but on the other hand, of the you've got more research-based startups which are trying to do the whole thing with machine learning. And I think that's uh, that's really exciting to me because it um, it has the opportunity to scale a lot better. And uh, But there are still some really, uh, some really key challenges there. So like I, I described before, when you do uh, move away from this hand-engineered uh, approach and look to learn the whole thing with machine learning, you really, uh, the one thing you lose is interpretability. So, so rather than designing, look, uh, I might slow down and stop at this uh, intersection because there's a car in front of me or car coming towards me, rather than manually defining those, you're learning it. And so as a consequence, uh, it's it's very hard to understand why a model does something. And so I think that raises some uh, some huge issues in, in interpretability and, and AI safety. Got it. Maybe to, to dig into that a little bit, um, you're right that after a, a, a model learns to stop at a certain set of stop signs and, and maybe not in a certain other set of situations, there becomes a an accountability question in terms of if it was a hand-coded rule uh, whereby an engineer told the car to stop at that stop sign and it mm-hmm. didn't, then there'd be some sort of responsibility in the hands of the engineer that you know maybe made a mistake there. I don't know, there's certainly an ethical question here. How do you approach the attribution of sort of responsibility for a model that is teaching itself to do something, uh, and then maybe it does something unexpected, uh, which might cause damage, might cause an accident? Yeah, it's a fascinating one. And I mean, when we had the first, uh, the really tragic first death from an autonomous vehicle last year uh, in a Tesla vehicle, I think uh, I think it was really interesting to see how the world reacted. And, you know, you one one scenario might have been where the world responded with crying out saying hey uh, machines are killing us uh, we want to ban this and and bring in some policy to to overregulate the space but actually what happened is that i think predominantly around the world people realized that actually these cars have driven however many thousands of kilometers with only one death and this 
by far um, outperforms what humans can do. So yeah, there is a really big ethical trade-off between people wanting to have some kind of accountability. And, and certainly if you're personally involved in a situation like that, that you really want to understand what's happened and, and why and, and and go through some judicial judicial process. But on a, on a societal level, I think there are some, um, uh, some, some really fascinating benefits we can get from this technology. What are the biggest challenges in, in the roadmap ahead for, for you and your business? Is it more technical, you know, you've got to build the technology to the point where it's going to achieve this outcome, or are the sort of ethical and societal level uh, restraints going to be, be a major player in your business? So I think the big thing for us is, uh, is, is being able to make people uh, able to trust and, and feel safe in this technology. So yeah, be, being able to being able to give interpretability to, to what these machines are thinking and, and what they're going to do, I think that's that's crucial. And uh, further than that, to give give say passengers the ability to uh, what we refer to as compliance, so they can they can really uh, within the, the sort of safety bounds of, of a system and the road rules within that, they can still uh, tweak and and control the system much like a backseat driver would. And I think that's uh, that's that's really important in in getting people to, to trust and, and for society to benefit from these machines is to, is to make them interpretable and compliant. Uh, that's, that's critical. Definitely. And as soon as you have sort of the individual in the car able to have a judgment like that, um, I suppose that also raises problems. And I'd, I'd love to hear what your approach to the, the classic trolley problem. I don't know if we should define that, but it's the um, if the, a train was going down a railway track and it had a fork and there was one person on, on tied to the track on one of the fork and, and five people tied to the track on the other fork, could you uh, re-divert the train away from the five people towards the, the one person? And, and this has got an application in autonomous cars where uh, does the car with one driver in it sacrifice itself in order to save the other car with five people in it? And, and I'd, I'd love if you've sort of approached this on, on any level within your studies, or maybe we're going outside of, of your focus here, so please redirect me. Yeah, I mean, that, that is going outside my focus, but my, my, uh, my take on this is that, yeah, it's, it's a great ethical question, and uh, you can come up with principles like um, trying to maintain current course of action uh, and, and or uh, ethical term of maximizing uh, human safety. But I, I think fundamentally, on when you start to, to look at actually how these things are implemented on an engineering level, uh, what tends to happen is that you have to come up with some kind of objective function for these machine learning systems to try and do and try and achieve. And that's defined in a very abstract sense. And it's also not uh, incredibly difficult to do. But the thing is, is that is that how a vehicle or a robot will react to situations largely depends on that and the training data it receives. And so, you, you know, you get bias in from all, all kinds of sorts of, of, uh, of types. I mean, you have bias in the collection data. You know, if, if all the data is collected in, in the sunny California, then how are you ever going to deal with situations outside there? And, uh, yeah, that's that, that's the real challenge. You, you have other problems like reward hacking where if, if you say, Tell the tell the AV to get from point A to point B the quickest. If that's its only goal, then it might do so by uh, by perhaps uh, some really negative side effects. And so so that's a, that's a really challenging area. And so so when you look at how these things are actually technically done, though, they're, they're somewhat disconnected from these uh, philosophical debates that people have. Got it. Leads into a really interesting question, though, because if, if what you're saying is that so much of the value is in the data that you can apply into the model, uh, a lot of the value then comes from owning that data, or at least having access to that data. And this is a really tricky one that a lot of people have been sort of voicing opinions around is how does a small startup uh, come and get access to that data uh, when they're up against Google who has all of the data and up against Tesla who have 
you know, tens of thousands of cars on the road that are all collecting the data. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you see, you know, you, how you're building this business for the long term in terms of getting and, and maintaining a, a data network effect advantage? Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, data is key. And getting data defensibility around, around what you're trying to do is a, is a, is a real value add. So that I, I think Tesla, as an example, is, have just done this brilliantly. They, as a, as a sort of a, um, consumer product, they've brought out their vehicles uh, almost as soon as they're ready to go. I mean, I've heard stories of, of vehicles being shipped with uh, 3D printed parts in them that uh, that were kind of put in last minute to make it work and make it roadworthy, and then uh, when they're brought into uh, for repairs, the engineers know these these ones and they replace them with the proper parts. And they just they have this mentality of, of just get them out early, get them get them collecting data, and then iterate from there. Uh, and and you know on the other hand, you've got the uh, the sort of uh, Apple mentality where you they take their iPhones, they perfect it, they get it really working really well, and then they bring it out in a and a sort of mass production, and I think that idea of, of uh, getting things out there ASAP and getting them interacting with the market is uh, is, is hugely critical for getting that that data feedback. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of self-driving data in the world at the moment, uh, it's it's fascinating because on the research level, there are um, there's actually petabytes of data out there that's available for free for for academic research, and that's really one been one of the, the crucial things in uh, in my field in computer vision driving research is the availability of these data sets so that we can actually try out problems that, you know, they're not restricted to the big tech giants, but but we can do ourselves. And there's sort of benchmarks around there where you can compete and and try and measure incremental improvements in algorithms. That's been that, that's been absolutely critical to the success of, success of computer vision. But also data is becoming a commodity. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like you need to have a fleet of vehicles to collect it. There's a number of startups who are, are collecting data and are looking to sell it. It's not super exclusive, and as algorithms are becoming less and less tied to the specific hardware that they're that they're designed on, um, I think that that in the robotic space we're going to see a, um, a really fascinating marketplace develop for data. Awesome. Um, I remember a I think it was a blog that you published, and you made the comment that you were you thought that we're running out of low hanging fruit or problems that we can solve with the simple high levels deep learning API, uh, and. And I, I remember uh, conversely there's a quote. I think it was Kevin Kelly from Wired, which is the next the business plans of the next ten thousand startups are easy to forecast. It's take X data and add AI. Um, and you're right that if the data is getting commoditized, and to an extent the API is available on demand from Amazon and from uh, sort of IBM Watson. If people are taking these available services and applying them to commoditize data, again, I suppose, where, is, where can an AI business build a moat? Where can you build a sustainable long-term business? Yeah, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's where I, uh, I really disagree with what a lot of people think in the field, is that data is value, and if you don't have that, then, then what are you doing? And I, I actually think that, that rather than data defensibility, I think algorithm defensibility is, is, is critical here, because I can tell you the story of what's happened in the research field, is that basically over the last, say, five years ago, uh, this, this thing I talked about called deep learning has come over and taken over uh, computer vision and a number of other fields. Uh, and with that, there have been a whole bunch of open source libraries that have shown how to build these basic models. And that's allowed people to, to take really hard problems in research that haven't, have been really challenging in the past and apply these models uh, that were sort of demonstrated on another task, take them, apply to the other one, and then suddenly, to some degree, they're solved. Now, that's kind of got us to where we are today. And I, I think your point about, uh, about doing that with business plans is, is somewhat similar. But there's going to be come to a point where that 
does is no longer sustainable. And in academia, I think we're we're almost there, and in in business, uh, you know, we're we're not too many years away. So I think that what's really critical in uh, in the in the future is focusing on algorithm defensibility. So look at what we do as, as humans. We can pick up an object and from one single look at it, we can understand its its physics, its uh, material properties, its it interact with it and this kind of thing. And so getting data efficient algorithms, um, I think is, is something that's uh, quite possible to do and to be able to understand with, with very limited amount of data. So uh, I can give you an example of, of, as humans, when we were born, uh, you can do a quick calculation of, of how many sort of saccades or visual glimpses a baby might have over the first year of its life. And it turns out to be about 10 million. And so that you can think of that like 10 million training examples that an infant has to learn how to see. That's, that's not much. You know, we have that sort of data, yet we don't have human-level vision. And so I think getting better algorithms is the way to the future. And that's that requires some some really creative and insightful research that, that goes beyond the brute force approach that, that people with lots of data are taking today. Brilliant. I want to get out of the out of the weeds a bit and um, focus more on on what you're up to at the moment. And in particular, you're building a business at the point of graduation from a long academic career. And traditionally, you might have gone into a big tech company or a big consultancy. Um, today, more and more people are actually taking their research and sort of taking it outside, spinning it out, commercialising it, building startups around that. Why do you want to build a business? And, and kind of what do you see among your your peers at Cambridge about Building startups versus the old career tracks. That's what I. That's what I think is really exciting. Is that is that engineering in particular is is become much more much more sexy. You know, it's not. It's it's engineers are doing things. They're creating things of, of immense value. And I think that that what really drives me is to build new stuff and to to innovate and uh, contribute something to the world. What uh, what I've observed in the last three years in academia is 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 that's fantastic. But it it has. I have trouble scaling it. I mean, you you mostly work on your own. Um, you can come up with some great ideas, but to build really impactful products and and things that are going to shape what the world is, you need you need to build a team. And unfortunately, that's. Uh, I mean, there are situations where that can occur in academia, and that's that's great. But I also I, I think there's a the real niche where that can sort of creative academic environment can happen, and that's in a startup. Yeah. So um, going down the sort of traditional engineering giant course, I mean that that also. Um, doesn't quite do it for me. The, the, the great thing about, I guess, this a, a really powerful tech-driven startup is you get to still do the research, you get to create new things, and and you get to really innovate. But then you also have the, the benefit of of non-organic growth, where you can you can grow a team to do something amazing uh, at a faster rate than you can do in academia. Interesting that you sort of focus on, and I, I'd agree uh, from my limited insight, but uh, agree that it's about the ability outside of academia to actually build a team, and and they all have the same focus, and you can work together. I mean, maybe this is what, say, OpenAI with, uh, over in the US are doing. They're building a non-profit organization focused on research as opposed to a startup. Yeah, is, is there some, some kind of trend in here as well? Absolutely. I mean, an example might be uh, going back to the DARPA challenges, which is really where autonomous vehicles started from. Uh, they were the challenges put on by the US Defense Scientific Funding Organization to try and make these amazing autonomous vehicles that could traverse deserts, uh, go around urban centers. And they attracted teams in academia of you know robotics teams of upwards of 20 to 30 people building some really good tech and and so that is possible and it's uh, it just requires quite a big commitment of funding to, uh, to to do these things within academia which is is really risky you know um, perhaps more so risky than doing a startup but uh, in terms of if the ideas are going to work but 
but has a big payoff. That makes sense. So the reason to a startup is that the capital structure is there in order to take risk capital to build the team and to compensate everyone. So really interested in that case to learn a bit about how you've been approaching engaging with angel investors in this space and sort of structuring your 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 company for growth. Are you sort of accepting inbound? Are you, are you you know looking at the particular people that you want to be investors and want to be advisors and, and seeking them out? Yeah, the, the great thing about this field is that is that people recognise the impact it can have and it's got such a buzz around it. Uh, so I, I guess we've been lucky in that aspect. But what's been brilliant is that the advances that are being made are quite closely tied to academia. And so the, the effort we've put in to do some really fantastic uh, world-leading research here at Cambridge University has created a massive buzz. And uh, so we've had the fortune of, of people really really buying into what we do and, and really approaching us. And uh, and so that's been something that, that we've, we've really enjoyed and engaged with. Um, and yeah, the, the the investing world has a, a very different insight of these things, and so it's it's been a two way learning process. But um, I think I, I think the ability to create a huge buzz of academic research was uh, was really critical here. Cool. Um, to bring it back home slightly, I, I mean, obviously you've got very strong ties back in New Zealand. Um, are you following what's evolving in the the research scene back home as well? I know that there's some some really talented people working through Auckland, Canterbury, you know, Otago, potentially building technology that could grow into a startup. And also, I'm interested, do you have advice in particular that those people who are maybe two or three years away from graduation now, should they be looking to get over here because this is where the capital is, or can they do that back home? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that, the thing is is that there's some really fascinating opportunities in NZ, and uh, and yeah, I do follow it because it's, it's something really close to home. Um, the, the, the key thing is that, what, you know, uh, what's fascinating today is that uh, no longer do engineers need to go and to, to make an impact, need to go into sort of consulting and banking. But actually, you know, actually engineering has become sexy. You can do some amazing things. And you're, you're right, um, perhaps uh, venture capital funding or, or otherwise is, is sort of harder to come by in New Zealand and, and also sort of science funding might be lower than what it is here. But, uh, you know, maybe we can be hopeful that will change. But there are some key things that, that New Zealand brings that there there is a wealth in the robotic space. There's a wealth of problems in, in agriculture. There's some really great manufacturing groups in New Zealand. And yeah, there are, there are great opportunities. And actually, uh, the New Zealand market's seen a lot of companies set up base and uh, and make a global impact. So I'm, I'm really excited by that. Um, and yeah, it's something I'd love to contribute to in the future. Brilliant, which is a, which is a perfect segue into my favorite question of all. Um, and that's, uh, what can we do to help? Who would you like to hear from? Or what sort of ins to what sort of industries can we help with? Yeah, I'm, uh, I love surrounding myself with fantastic and, and talented people. So if you know, if it's for a conversation or for, for anything, um, people are interested in, in the research I'm in in computer vision or in robotics or, or broadening my horizons beyond that, um, I'd love to engage and, and I encourage anyone to, to get in touch, uh, you know, whether, whether they're sort of an aspiring engineer in New Zealand or, or anything like that. Um, that's, uh, you know, I, I love hearing these stories and love following people and what they're doing. So uh, any, anyone with, uh, with fascinating insights or, or um, aspirations in, in technology, uh, yeah, love to get in touch. And to convert that into a shout out for you, you're probably going to be hiring top machine learning uh, engineers at some point in the near future, if not already. So I'm sure there's a there's an end there for them as well. Hey, Alex, I really appreciate the time today. Uh, thanks so much for, for for coming on. Thanks, Alex.